לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, Welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamet, Highland Park Conservative Tower, Highland Park, New Jersey. Joining me, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Anshay Chesed, New York City, Rabbi Barry J. Chesler. Salman Shek, there along on it. We are recording this Parsha Miketz and it's Shabbat Chanukah. Happy Chanukah to all of our listeners. We're so grateful that you are spending some time with us whenever you're watching this. And we're also... Uh, celebrating the 30th anniversary of Rabbi Barry Chesler's senior sermon at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. Congratulations, Barry Chesler. Thank you. It's worth noting my senior sermon was on the 50th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1991. And it was, in addition to being Miketz and Shabbat Hanukkah, it was also Rosh Chodesh. And I began my senior sermon with those memorable words that This was the Jewish version of Torah, 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 since we read from three Torahs. Not quite what the Japanese were dropping on Pearl Harbor, but nevertheless, it was an auspicious beginning to that great event. Yeah, it occurs to me that not, it, it's conceivable that not all our listeners know the life cycle event known as the senior sermon. Why don't, why don't you tell us what that is? Well, back in the day... Each rabbinical student had to deliver a sermon in the seminary synagogue on Shabbat. Or Shemini Atzeret. <laughs> in which case you could go to Unnerberg. Um, it was a ritual designed, I guess, to mark the transition of the senior student into the workplace world. Um, times have changed, and now I think all the senior sermons are during the week. Um, because so many of the rabbinical students no longer live in the environs in the seminary community. So it makes uh, delivering a sermon on Shabbat problematic, but it's one of the great rites of passage of uh, seminary education. It, 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 I'm going to use the same word. It's a rite of passage. Jeremy, what was your senior sermon? Tzav. Tzav. Yeah, it was, it was good. It was because uh, I, I like talking about sacrifices and the, uh, and, I spoke about whether or not we can include, like, you know, how many conservative prayer books have, have tried to eliminate the references to the praying for the restoration of sacrifices. I myself don't really want to have uh, animal sacrifice as worship, but I think we make a great mistake if we don't, like, try to have the poetic power of what sacrifice means and the remembrance of it and stuff like that. So that's what I spoke about. What did you have? I, I had um, Shemini Atzeret. It was the... Shlemut Solomon. Solomon, uh, the Haftorah of, of Shemini Atzeret, which, uh, is, you know, I fell in love with that story and, and uh, such a great, powerful moment in, in the history of Israel and, and a, a riveting story and a beautiful character. And look, you know, it's so interesting as we get started on the Parsha, how... How Torah lives with us. I mean, it's 30 years for you, you yeah. know, maybe 31 for me. Uh, and, and Jeremy, what, 20-something? 24, yeah. And, you know, these 
these texts really are alive for us um, in a way that, that is very, very profound. And, and I think, you know, when you look at this Parsha, and for me it was last week, Vayesha, but it's the whole cycle of these stories. They really live deeply in all of us because we connect to them on so many levels. So I'm going to raise the, the verse that you spoke about because we, we have a bit of a debate about that. When we know the story, the story is that it's two years after Joseph is incarcerated on, on the charges of uh, Potiphar's wife's seduction, whatever took place there. And he's in jail. And the at the end of last week, the chief cupbearer of Pharaoh promised said, you know, made the promise, Joseph made him promise, but the Parsha ended with the cupbearer saying, he did not remember and he forgot him. Then two years later, Pharaoh has these dreams, seven fat cows, seven skinny cows, seven stalks and seven skinny stalks. And we, we know how those dreams play out and nobody can interpret the dreams for him. And the cupbearer, it seems, is kind of standing off to the side of the stage as this is playing out. And then he utters the immortal words, et chata'ai ani maskir hayom. I recall my sins today. Now, Barry, you took it in a, in a direction that is, that is a profound direction in terms of recalling, you know, the sin. I, have, I recall my sins. And that, that phrase enters into both rabbinic language and also modern Hebrew by saying, look, I, I made a mistake. I, I, I'm sorry for what I did, but where did you take it and, and what does it mean? So at the time of my senior sermon, as the 50th anniversary of Pearl Harbor was also a time of reckoning in Japan, coming to terms with World War II, one of the things that we often forget in the United States is that uh, other countries involved in World War II, both among the Allies and uh, the uh, Axis, was it? Um, had a lot of accounting to do after the war. Um, both for good and for bad. And the Japanese were first starting to come to terms, not only with the fact that they lost the war, but that their behavior through the 30s and through the conduct of the war was often beyond the bounds of what we might call normal warfare, if such a term can be used in civilized society. And it was causing a great deal of consternation because of the, the national mythos in Japan that was associated with the emperor, and the degree of emperor worship. And it struck me that, you know, all redemption, such as it is, must begin with some degree of accountability, that we cannot forget our sins. We have to acknowledge them in order to get past them. Okay. A lot of us often think we can forget them and put them behind us, but that's not the way it works re religiously. So, so I want to say, honestly, when you, when you look at the character then, you you are giving us a, a very conciliatory um, interpretation or picture of this character, the cupbearer character. Yeah, I think, you know, as I said before, that sometimes the cupbearer might be misunderstood. So it's curious to me that the language of not remembering and forgetting is going to be picked up again near the end of Sefer Devarim with the mitzvah of Amalek, um, where we have the same thing, you have to remember and not forget. So it's part of human nature to forget things that, you know, we all have lists where we meant to do something and didn't get to it. And we don't say that we're defective because of that. We wish we had behaved otherwise. There's no question about that. But on the other hand, we recognize it, I think, as part of human behavior. Oh. And 
Go on. I'm I'm less sympathetic to him. I, I and and I, I I I'm taking the license of okay, it's a story, and I can be a little cruel. Okay, and, but but I he, he he drives me crazy. This guy. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> and Jeremy, I'm looking to you for, for for some kind of refereeing here. I mean, okay. make, make conciliation. He he. He's only about himself. He, he, you know, this is a court story. This is a, a royal court story where, where in a royal court, everybody's looking, you know, to, to cover themselves. And, um, and he's got a lot of covering to do. And, you know, he didn't want to put himself out to petition Pharaoh for amnesty for this Jewish kid, this Hebrew. The Hebrew kid is in jail. He asked me to do it. I want to do a fair, eh, you know, I, I'm going to get on with my life here. I, you know, there's parties going on. I got to tend. He's like the barista of Pharaoh, you know, and like, I don't want to make, eh, leave him alone, you know, and it costs two years of Joseph's life. So this forgetting is, is, is actually quite cruel. I'm, I'm so, Okay. So, Jeremy, so go ahead. I think that one way to answer this question is, what is et chatai animaskir hayom? I mention I, I make mention of my sins now. Um, I think that most of the mafarshim say, "I'm sorry to have to remind you, great sovereign, of that time I irked you and you put me in jail." And I'm et chatai the chet that I am maskir hayom, the chet that I am the sin that I am the misdeed that I'm referring to here. Is that thing that happened, whatever it was, we don't know what it was, that prompted him to get thrown in the dungeon. And I'm sorry to bother you when I remind you of that time that I spilled the, the you know, jug of wine on your on your uh, nice outfit or whatever it was. In which case, I think that lends itself quite well to Eliot's interpretation. And that is what most of the Mepharshim say, which is that I'm, 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 I'm remembering... Uh, making mention of this bad thing in my, vis-a-vis my position in the court. And uh, however, I'm also going to use that to advance my position in the court because it's going to, it's going to, um, uh, you know, I'm going to be able to, to help Pharaoh in this one way. Alternatively, maybe the chet that he's maskiring Hayom is that he did make a promise to Joseph and then forgot about it. Yeah. And if that's the case, then I think it's Barry. Then I think it lends itself more to Barry's interpretation that that the that the that the, the cupbearer who did not remember Joseph and forgot him, who not only did not remember him once he got out of jail, that he forgot him again for years thereafter and blew it off and didn't pay any attention to it. Um, if that's the case, then now he's saying, "Oh my goodness, I really do have to make chuba." Then I think that lends itself to a somewhat more noble interpretation of of what the guy is is about. So interesting, you know. I, I want to go to the the question. You know, what makes the Torah great is that we can we can really debate the this the this character and um, how he how two of us three of us can see three different sides to him and 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 it's all substantiated by the text, which continues on the notion that Joseph successfully interprets the dream. They haul him out, they shave him down, they wash him down, they put him in a new set of clothes, and we know all of that is a, a running motif in, in these stories, the clothing especially. Um, and basically he says, look, you know, this is what's going to happen. Pharaoh's dream is one, so he keys into that, and he basically says, look, you're going to have seven fat years and seven skinny years, 
and here's what you need to do. You need to you need to save up. You need to hoard the grain during the fat years so that during the lean years you'll have some stuff. Uh, and uh, what is so fascinating, I, you know, I didn't mention this before, but but you have an interesting thing going on here where the Hebrew is giving advice to the Gentile, right? The Gentile sovereign, and and I want to say I'm going to push on this, which is that Pharaoh is adopting Joseph as a surrogate son here. So the son, the surrogate son, gives administrative advice to the Gentile father. And in a few weeks from now, we're going to see the inverse of that, where the Gentile father is going to give advice to the surrogate son. It's it's an inversion of the Moses-Yitro story. You know, later on. So I think there's something cool going on here. Anyway, um, so it's worth pointing out here that you know when Pharaoh has his dreams, his magicians cannot interpret the dreams. Yeah. And the reason why they can't interpret the dreams, I think, what we're led to believe as as Jews and students of the the Jewish sects is because the dreams actually are from God. They're not from the world of the magicians. The magicians actually operate quite well in the circumscribed world. But the world of God is not part of their world. And so they need Joseph for this. And I wanted to add also that I think, you know, we were talking earlier how Joseph is in prison an extra two years. How does that actually function in the story? It brings Joseph to the age of 30, which may be significant in the narration. But it also allows us to remind ourselves that behind the story is the is the workings of the unrevealed God, meaning that God is not directly involved in the story. He's behind the scenes. And so it's part of God's plan. I think this is part of the Torah's teaching that Joseph is in prison for those extra years, not so much because of Butler's sin. You know, if you ask someone else, they'll say that it was Joseph's fault because he asked the Butler in the first place. Um, So I, I think that, you know, at at some point, we have to reckon with God's role in all of this. What you're saying now calls to mind. You know, there are a number of uh, a number of parallels or resonances in Joseph's stories with other passages in the Bible. There's so much that looks like the Book of Esther. Um, they are both stories about Jews in foreign courts. Similarly, the Book of Daniel. Daniel is is one that we don't really get to that much. There's some there's some you know very big verses. Um, especially in in Jewish mysticism, uh, the phrase, uh, you know, the the enlightened sparkle like the radiance of heaven, um, you know, that's the why why the mystical book is called the Zohar is based on that that verse. So Daniel does have something, but for the most part, we don't get to Daniel because it's not read in the synagogue, but there's a lot of parallels there too. And in, in all of these cases that the motif is not Hashem comes to the mountain and does a great miracle and and you know uh, blows everybody away with the with the kocho uh, hagadol yad chazaka and the outstretched arm of the great might and the power. These are stories that are quite different. These are stories about, uh, like you said, the un the unrevealed God, and you have to know how to look. Joseph, you know, always portrays when he when he was back in prison. He says, "Hallo Elohim pitronim." The, the interpretation of dreams belongs to God. We talked last week actually about how Joseph is more like 
the the kind of wizard prophets than he is like the literary prophets or he doesn't get a word from God. You know, he gets like an enigma that he has to decipher. And that's what he's really good at. Uh, so, so Joseph is that being, there's a person in a, a kind of sometimes a hidden world where topsy-turvy, where it doesn't seem like it's, it's the, the order is manifest, but he knows how to read the otherwise vague signals. All right. So Joseph gets elevated and, and he, he's married off. And, and uh, I have a theory about that, but I want to go into that. But, but um, let's, let's go to the scene where the brothers come down. Uh, Yaakov says, we, I got, you know, we're, we're basically starving to death. Go down to Egypt. Redu Shama. Go down there. Vishivru Lano Misham. And get us some sustenance from there. And Yaakov says, let's, so that we can live and not die. And, and I find that very, very um, significant. Here's, here's a guy that has that been battered by life, um, refused to be comforted, uh, has every reason to want to check out, uh, but he doesn't. He says, I want to I live. We want to live and not die. I think it's a basic survival uh, impulse too, but it's, it's, it's got, I, I think, spiritual dimensions to it. The brothers go down, and Joseph is now the ruler, and they go before him, and they bow before him. Joseph sees his brothers, and he recognizes them, and he acts cruelly to them, speaks harshly to them, and they say, we came here to get some, some food, and Joseph said, then it says beautifully, Joseph remembers the dreams. So I want to ask you guys, you think, you think he forgot the dreams? And this goes back to the theme of remembrance and forgetting. Um, did, did he forget those? What, is, what does that mean? Okay, I, I think what it means is, so we, we have to understand there are three pairs of dreams. These are the first two. Then there are the two in prison, and then there are Pharaoh's two dreams. Okay. First, the dreams in prison and Pharaoh's dreams, there's no question that they come from God. And Joseph is able to interpret them as a kind of spokesperson for God. The question, though, is where did the dreams come from that he has at, uh, in uh, the beginning of Ayeshev? And one can argue, as we suggested last week, he probably would have been best off not sharing the dreams out loud. But I think that what happens now is a confirmation for him that the dreams come from God. Because with the unrevealed God, the God who is hidden, we don't always know what is God and what is not God. We have intimations, and occasionally we have confirmation. And now he has a confirmation that this was not Right, because Joseph himself might have thought, you know, I was an arrogant 17-year-old kid. What was I doing? And now he says, aha, I may have been indelicate in my approach, but I was actually speaking for God, and now I see it come to four. Well, I, I would say um, we, we all know that the Torah is a, you know, a supreme, and on top of everything else, a supremely subtle literary work. You know, maybe this is just a slightly... If one can say such a such a thing, you know, so a, a slightly uh, not so deft, like hit you over the head with it, uh, you know, like when 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 Lavan does the switcheroo 
of Rachel and Leah, and Jacob is now is now uh, you know the victim of a con. The Torah doesn't say, "Huh, that's just like what Yaakov did to his father when he took Esau's place." But we all recognize it, and it didn't have to say it. And I kind of wish it hadn't said this here because we all recognized that this are the people bowing down to him. And I feel like it's just sort of like bang, 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 bang on the, on the head in an unnecessary way. So maybe it's maybe it's how we interpret the word zachar vayiskor. We interpret it as remember. Maybe it's something like calls to mind. I, I want to run this interpretation by you, and, and 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 it may not be totally substantiated by the text, but it works for me. Which is that, you know, he's thirty something years old right now. He's thirty nine. Okay, when they come, it's seven years into the famine, seven, the, 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 the plenty years are over, seven, and it's two years into the famine, so he's 39 years old. You know, when you're 18, you, you, and 17, you think of what you just experienced in your dreams one way, but when you're 39, you look at them in a different way. He is now an adult, he is now a parent, he is now a person of influence and power, and like everyone who grows up and matures and goes through different experiences in life, and including a lot of hardship, the way you relate to, you know, your, your, your youthful um, achievements is different now that you're an adult when you were living in them. And that, to me, I want to propose that as the meaning here or an interpretation by it means he's looking at them now in a different way of course it, I, I don't think they ever left him right the same way that that you know we're all in love with the music that we grew up with I'm, i happen to be thinking about that a lot lately and and you know the music that you grew up with when you were 15 16 you know that shaped your life and you don't forget that but I can tell you, I relate to it so differently now, you know, classics, I relate to so differently now, they mean so much more, they're so richer to me. I don't know, Jeremy, you, you have any resonance with this idea? In terms of music, at least, or just in terms of the dream? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that, um, I, I think that Joseph is such a rich character because of the tremendous complicated, ambivalent emotions that he displays. So he calls to mind the chalomot. He calls to mind the dreams and the expectation that he had at 17, that he would be, you know, the king, king of the family. And now it has happened, but in a way very different than he anticipated. Yeah, exactly. And, and it, so it does mean something quite different. To me, one of the great lines of this recurring theme is he kept he keeps saying to them, "You have come to see Miraglimatem, you are spies to see Ervat Haaretz." What does that mean? The nakedness of the land, the vulnerability of the land. I mean, he underwent. You know, we we throw the word trauma around. Everything's a trauma, and everybody's a trauma survivor. He is really a trauma survivor. His brothers, this is family violence, okay? His brothers threw him in a pit and sold him to slavery. And, um, and 
when he's when he makes this, you know, like there's any number of things he could have done. What he does is make an aggressive confrontation to them and says, you know, you've come to you've come to look under my skirt and see my vulnerability. Um, you've come to see the land, but I think that he's using the vulnerability of the land. But I think he's really saying you've come to see my vulnerability again, you know, to so to speak. I mean, it's not to put too fine a point on it, but, to, you know, to pull down his pants again. And, so. It's a wonderful insight because underneath his skirt, it is revealed that Joseph is a Hebrew because he's circumcised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I've, been, I've been wrestling with that phrase for the whole week now. But the other thing that occurs to me is that because of what's been going on in Egypt, Egypt, even though it's successful as a food producer with storehouses that could feed the people for seven years, is more vulnerable now because all the food is in a few locations. Yeah. Right? If it were a normal year, food would be all over the land and you would have to conquer the entire land to conquer the food supply. But now no. you just have to conquer a couple of cities. Not only that, but, but they're, they're coming down with, with, with Haba'im, all the people that are coming there. They're in a teeming mass of people that are coming for this 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 sustenance. Right, well, but it's, 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 I mean, let's not forget that you know they're in it for the money. The Egyptians, the Egyptians are in the, for the money. But by the way, I just want to say you just said you know betoch habaim. Uh, we're familiar. I think maybe some of our listeners are also familiar with the um, with the you know where, how's the derivation of a minion? And some people say, oh, you know, it's what Abraham back with Sidon, but that's not what the, what the Talmud actually says. The Talmud. Makes what's called a gzera shava drash. It's a it's a it's a way of interpreting a the recurrence of a word in place A and plus B. It must be parallel uh, place B. So there's toch toch. Um, there are ten bad spies. There are the word toch is also used at the Torah. Um, so there are ten bad spies. That's why the ten is a minion. But actually, in a different place, the Talmud says that the ten brothers come betoch habaim that that's the 10 that is the source of the minion. I like this a lot better because I, I feel that sense of, of fami- you know, familial connection and, and uh, you know, they're trying to come through and trying to feed, feed their family and trying to come out, trying to rescue people in a famine. Uh, I find this like, this is a cool source for minion. But um, just as we're talking, it makes me think about, you know, refugees in the United States and in Western Europe and in Britain, um, these tremendous, like the world has lots of poverty, world has lots of suffering, and lots and lots and lots of people want to come to these wealthy countries. And the wealthy countries, at whatever level, you know, yes, you do have to have some border control. Uh, yes, you do have to have fair immigration laws and citizenship laws. And you have to not be cruel. You know, our, our shul... Um, just next week, there's a there's a Afghan family that we're that are arriving here next week, and we're going to take care of setting them up, and um, we got an apartment for them and other stuff like that. Um, and you know, I can just imagine that Joseph, when he says to his brothers, "You've come to see Ervat Haaretz," I'm like hearing, you know, politicians in in the United States or Britain or or Canada or whatever say, uh, "These people, they come, they've come. We don't trust them. We don't know them." And it's a little contemporary resonance. That's fascinating. Okay, so 
the 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 brothers are are given a, a run for their money quite quite literally um and there's a, a little aside that they have when um joseph really uh deals harshly with them uh they have this moment where they they are they, they're they're thrown into jail and then they're hauled out of jail um but but as as they're getting um so um terribly treated Reuben says um they, no they they say ashemim anachnu they say to each other aval ashemim anachnu we're guilty we're guilty this is they're talking to each other it's such a beautiful staged moment because the brothers are speaking in hebrew i guess to 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 themselves um and um they say we are guilty for our brother we saw his anguish when he when he was pleading in front of us we didn't hear his pleas and thus this uh, this terrible torment is coming down to us and and it's such a great dramatic moment because it, there's a translator there but you know joseph knows what's going on uh there's a, there's a translator who, according to the Midrash, is Menashe, yeah. um, Joseph's son Menashe, and the name, the, the Nun Shin Yud root in Hebrew and Aramaic, means forget. And Joseph, when he gives him the name Menashe, says, you, you have made me forget all the suffering of my father's house. Um, and yet, it's not that way at all. Uh, the, 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 according to the Midrash, Menashe is the translator. So, the, the brothers don't know this is their nephew and that he's really one of them. But I, the image that I love about this is that it has Joseph naming his child, forgetting, we are Egyptians now, we do not remember that terrible place, we do not remember those terrible people. By the way, let me teach you the language that will enable you to connect to those people. He wants to forget, he wants to remember. Menashe is a symbol of forgetting, in his, forgetting his old life, beginning his new life, but he's also the link that connects him to the old life. And that to me is just another example of Joseph's tr- tremendous ambivalence. He really is traumatized and can't let the past go and uh, and really in the end shouldn't let the past go. There's a slightly different way to understand that, I think. And the Torah emphasizes that the sons are born during the seven good years. And so things are going great for Joseph. And now he's able to forget the his father's house He's, he can put the pain behind him. He does not have to continue to dwell in the pain of his youth and his uh, abandonment by his family because he's now on his feet. He has a family of his own. He's a provider, not just for them, but for the entire country. And um, so it doesn't necessarily have to have the, the ambivalence that you're suggesting, even though I think that's what I ultimately believe. You know, I want to say two things. One about the names is, you know, that Menashe, that's the name that he got called up for his bar mitzvah. Maybe he had a, an Egyptian name also, okay? But, um, you know, the Torah only gives us the two dreams that Joseph has at the beginning. You know, we don't know anything about his dream life in Egypt. And and as you are talking, and we're talking about trauma and memory and, and all of these things, which are such powerful themes, I'm thinking, like, how could he not have thought about it? How... You know, how, how deeply do you, how hard do you have to push a memory out of you? And I'm thinking about all these people who have been traumatized and people, you know, survivors, 
that that when they came and they started to make a life for themselves and and they couldn't sleep at night they couldn't sleep because mm-hmm. of this and and they they suffered terribly from from the dreams many of whom you know went on to to incredible lives of success but were haunted deeply by by dreams and even nightmares i i I'm, thank god i've never been in you know that kind of situation where i've been uprooted um but i but but i can't imagine that that deeply there's a deep psychic wound in joseph and we just you know the the text doesn't give us any of that because that's you know the text is dealing with its with a different kind of story here and you react to that at all or no any anything you want to say so so we we can zip forward to to the end which leaves us in the in the great cliffhanger right that joseph well, you know let's let's just in addition to going to the end, but there's, the end is recapitulating something that happens earlier in, is that when they, we didn't really talk about the Shimon situation, which is that when he, when the brothers come down, Joseph sends them back with the food. Right. He holds Shimon as a hostage in prison. Yes. And, and that recapitulates what they did to Joseph. I mean, Shimon may be the willing self-sacrificer here, I don't know, but he says, okay, you go back, leave me one guy as a hostage, I'm going to keep him in chains until you come back with your younger brother. They go back to Canaan. We were talking before the, the recording began. It's probably about six months. They go enjoy their food. <laughs> and they leave Shimon in jail. And those, nobody seems to be too upset about this. Like, shouldn't the best answer have been, all right, all right, all right, guys, we're going to bring the food home, and then we're going to send two of us back down to go get Shimon again. Yeah, That would have been the thing to do. But they don't. They they. As they had abandoned Yosef, so they abandoned Shimon. And and what happens now at the cliffhanger? Tell the us cliffhanger, that. okay. So so Benjamin is framed with the silver goblet. We know that from the play. And uh, Joseph says, whoever is taking my cup, they're going to stay, and they'll be my slave. And, and of course, uh, that is when, and this is, you know, the, the dramatic moment, the brothers tear their garments they tear their garments here that in a way that they didn't even pretend to tear when they brought the coat back right the the coat you know i i I was thinking about this is the coat torn we imagine the coat torn but it never says that the the ornamented tunic the cotona pasim is torn and and here they all tear they should have torn earlier here they're tearing now because they really see that this is, it's over for them. That's, that's how the Parsha ends. We can't end there, of course. Well, they, they, it, 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 they, they, the rabbis give us exactly a cliffhanger. You know, the very definition of tshuva is to be in the same situation as you were before and to act differently this time. And so that's what, that's what Joseph, he's been, he's been, you know, cruel because he may be legitimately angry or legitimately traumatized. There may be a number of things. He may be still mad at his father for setting him up and mad at all the brothers, all of which would be justified. But you kind of want him to have said, now that I'm second in command in Egypt, you know, maybe when the, maybe when the years of, of, of good health were starting or something like that. By the way, let's send a message to this guy in Canada. Come on, man! Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You, you couldn't have sent a message? You know, but he doesn't. He doesn't do that. He lets them sweat it out, and he lets them sweat it out with with Shimon. But now he's put them in a position where where he's going to make them sweat with Benjamin, and 
we're going to see that they they are going to be in the same situation as before, but this time act differently. Right. So the, their failure here is that now they've been entrusted with Benjamin's welfare, and that they can they're unable to fulfill that, and that is very different. When Joseph was the dreamer, they were willing to get rid of him to sell him to, into uh, slavery. With Shimon. That was, someone had to say, they knew that. And, you know, we could figure out however they decided it was going to be Shimon, it was. But with Benjamin, now it's completely unexpected because they, they're they caught from two sides, from the Joseph side, remembering what they did to Joseph, but also the additional anguish for their father who didn't want them to take Benjamin for precisely this reason, that they were going to lose him. And they said, no, we won't. And now they do. And it's it's practically uh, the tension is practically unbearable. And the rabbis, of course, in their genius, divide this between two different Shabbatok. So we don't get any resolution. So let's I want to make sure you came back to show next week. Of course. It's like sometimes there's a good kiddish. Sometimes there's a guest speaker. This time they just wanted to make sure that they. That the well, actually, book. they wanted you to come back for Mincha and then you get to your answer. Yeah, but, so nobody, nobody look at the story read ahead you can't you're not allowed to read ahead during Torah, which this week was a beautiful Torah for 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 shabbat hanukkah give me the punchline of this week's shabbat hanukkah story jeremy kalinowski i know this because it's not the 30th anniversary of my senior sermon but it is the 12th anniversary of my daughter's bat mitzvah not me kate's but hanukkah not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's, it's a, such a profound, profound. So I just want to add here, this Haftarah is the counterpoint to a kind of machloket about the proper wording of the second bracha that we say over the candles. So Sha'asa Nisim Lavotenu, either by Amimahim, or that we thank God for the miracles he performed for us at this time in days of yore, meaning that the Hanukkah season 2,500-odd years ago, or that God did miracles for us back then and he continues to do miracles for us today. And I think that the important message for us, I think, and that's why I say Basman Hazat, is that we want to believe that God continues to do miracles today. That the central meaning of Hanukkah is that the miracles of Hanukkah are repeated throughout history. Rabim biyad me'atim, Rishayim biyad sadikim, the many delivered into the hands of the few, uh, and the wicked to the hands of the righteous. You know, I had my class with my uh, teens this week who talked about this miracle question. And... And I brought them, it's, it's, it's it, I tell you, it, honestly, it kind of sounds like a quote, too good to be true. It's one of those internet quotations, but maybe it's true. Uh, Albert Einstein said, there are two ways to live in life. One is to think that nothing is a miracle. And the other is to think that everything is a miracle. And I thought that was a great, just a totally yeah, great like Totally great. Well, if everything is a miracle, then this is a miracle too. And I can't help but think that this is a miracle that we, the three of us can, Communicate this way, and, and it's it's just unbelievable. But to all of our listeners who are watching us in whatever medium they are, whether it's on Facebook or 
uh, on our various channels on YouTube. Uh, we, we are so delighted, honored that you are with us. We want to wish each and every one of you a happy Hanukkah and a good Shabbos. And, and a good thank Chodesh. You so much. And Rosh Chodesh also. Fill up the darkness with light, everybody. Amen. 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 Shalom.